0: This is The Secret Library, a podcast about creating books. I'm Caroline Donahue, and as a coach for people who dream of writing, I made this show for all of you with a book simmering there on your mind's back burner. Through these conversations with authors, publishers, small presses, agents, designers, and everyone connected to the making of books, you'll learn where the books come from and how to write yours. There's a place on The Secret Library shelf waiting for your story. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by Story Arcana Tarot for Writers. Use the tarot to break through writer's block. You can get 10% off the course by using the code SECRETLIBRARY, all one word, at storyarcana.com. Thanks so much as well to our sponsor, Pretty by Post, a gorgeous subscription service of indie greeting cards or stationery. Visit prettybypost.com slash bookdoctor, that's book dr to learn how you can get free shipping off the lifetime of your subscription, which is a really amazing deal. Happy New Year and welcome to 2017's first episode of the Secret Library Podcast. First of all, I wanted to take a minute to thank everybody listening for the incredible response we had um, from just starting the show in May of 2016. It's been an incredible ride. We've had some amazing guests. um, And it's been wonderful to hear from everybody. So thank you so much for that. And I'm really excited to bring you something a little different this week on the show. Um, This week, my guest is J.H. Moncrief. She was raised in the far north amid Jack. London's world of dog sleds and endless winters, and she's been obsessed with psychological suspense, mysteries, and true crime for as long as she can remember. I'm sure many of you out there can relate. I definitely can. Um, She is endlessly fascinated by what makes people tick and has visited many of the world's most haunted places. She won Harlequin's international search for, quote, the next Gillian Flynn and has co-written a psychological suspense for the publisher, uh, that will be released in 2017, so we can look forward to that this year. She's also written a novella, The Bear Who Wouldn't Leave, and has stayed on Sam Hance's horror bestsellers list for over a year. She began her writing career as a journalist, tracking down snipers and canoeing through crocodile-infested waters, Her articles have appeared in many national and international publications, including The Globe and Mail. She's also, I love this about her, a book doctor for a New York City literary agent and a professional ghostwriter with Gotham Ghostwriters in New York. In her spare time, she loves to travel, advocate for environmental and animal rights, and Muay Thai kickbox when her nose isn't stuck in a book. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode because as... I felt, um, I think most of us don't really know as much about the horror genre as we think. I think that it encapsulates things like suspense and psychological thriller works that so many of us have enjoyed. And I think it is a bit of a misunderstood genre. It definitely was for me. So I think you'll enjoy listening to this conversation where we really dive into that, what it was like to write a book where the publisher had already decided what the plot would be and how it was to win such an incredible award. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of J. H. Moncrief's work um, in the future, and I'm really excited to see it. So enjoy the show. So hi, and welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited. We're starting out 2017, and this is our first episode of the new year. And one thing that's exciting is that we have never had anyone on who writes suspense or horror before. And you really, I, I see that you've written both suspense and horror, but you really identify as horror on your website. So tell me about how you came to. Really identify with that genre? Uh, Pretty early on, actually. Uh, I think
1: it was in high school. I was in a sort of special writing program. And my instructor at that time hated what he called Disney endings. So any sort of happy ending he hated, and I found the easiest way to get around happy endings was to write horror. (laughs) Because uh, you're really free with, that's one thing I love about horror is you're free to end it however you like. There's no genre promise that things are going to turn out the way you want them to. So it's probably some of the only books where you really don't know as a reader what's going to happen in the end. You know, if you're reading a romance or, even most thrillers, you kind of have the expectation that in the end, the hero or the heroine will triumph and all will work out in the end. And with horror, that's not necessarily true a lot of the time.
0: No, that's true. I wonder if that's something that's the most appealing to people reading it is the true kind of lack of control you have and the lack of expectation that's possible. I think it definitely sets up suspense. It
1: definitely sets up, you know, being on the edge of your seat and turning those pages because you really don't know how things are going to shape out. And I find with other books, if I'm reading in other genres, I always kind of know. And that does sort of minimize how excited I am about getting to the end because I know everything's going to be fine.
0: Or you don't know. So, how does that change your relationship with your characters? Because one of the things I find that's difficult is that I get kind of attached and protective of them. But there's no way you can feel that way if you're writing horror.
1: Well, you do. Um, With mine, I have kind of a bizarre process, (laughs) Uh, but they they do seem like real people to me. And I've been in agony before when I know someone is going to die, and I'll you know, I'll cry and I'll go through periods of mourning. I've thrown up before when some uh, characters had something really bad happen to them. So I get extremely emotionally involved. But in some cases, like the one where the fellow was going to die and I was in mourning, I mean, I was writing about somebody who lived in the 1600s. So no matter what, he was going to die in the present day, right? He wasn't going to be around. So yeah, I kind of just had to you know, accept it and move forward and tell the story the way it was supposed to be told. But I'm always surprised if I
0: get to the end of a book and nobody dies. It's like, whoo, wow, that's unusual. No, it's true. Well, historical fiction, I guess that is a good good protection. It's like, well, they were going to be dead by now anyway. So I might as well make it interesting. True enough. So how did you get into writing novels? And you have a number out today. And one of the things I'm really impressed by is that on your books page, you have progress reports about how you're doing on books you're writing in, which seems particularly baller to me that you report how they're coming along. So how did you come to use that system?
1: I actually saw that on a a writer friend who did that on her website, so I can't totally take the credit for it. And I just thought that was really interesting because one of the things I get asked all the time is when is the next book coming out? And I thought it might help people to see where I'm at uh, because when I was first published, I had a lot of books, but they weren't out because I've been a journalist for so many years and I found that really held me back. I was so busy in my day-to-day writing that it, I could write books, but actually taking the time to submit and find an agent again and get a publisher again um, was another full-time job. So I was way behind on on that side. Um, but once I was finally published, I I have 10 books now that I've got to get out that are already done and waiting to go. So I thought it might be helpful for people to at least see If they're not seeing right away, oh, this book is coming out and you can buy it now, at least they could see where I was at with writing them. And that's helped a bit. I don't get quite as many questions as I used to now. So I'm hoping it's that, but I could be wrong.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to me because there is this tension between the need to connect with the readership, but also I think of writing as such a private process, so it seems like that's an interesting way to balance it. Did that change? It sounds like it changed once you were published. A little bit, for sure. Um,
1: but the pressure increased, actually, when I got published, because then people were aware of me, and they wanted to know when the next book was coming out. And I got that a lot. Even The, the pressure was pretty intense um, among writers at my publisher, because that particular book was horror, and it's such a close-knit community And you get to be really good friends with everyone else at your publisher, at least the majority of them. And they were all like, okay, well, why, where's your other books? You know, they read that and they wanted to support me. And they're like, okay, well, where's your other books? How come you don't have anything else out? And, you know, meanwhile, they've got like 20 out or 30 out. Yeah, the pressure actually increases, I think, when you get published rather than the other way around.
0: Oh, definitely. I would think like you can sort of hide or be in private. And then as soon as everyone knows, then you're kind of then there's other people that are invested in the process. For sure. Yeah, it was definitely a
1: bizarre experience for me in the beginning, because I wasn't used to that. I was used to, you know, people going, Oh, how's the writing going? But uh, as soon as you have something out, then there's that expectation, okay, when's the next thing coming out? Like, what do you mean next thing? <laughs> it's like, this was one publishing contract, I have to find another, it's not uh it's not as easy, but now, um, as of 2017, it, it will be a little bit easier. I think. I hope to uh, be able to tell people when things are coming out.
0: What's changing this year?
1: A couple of things. I've got uh, I've got books picked up with Harlequin and with Severed Press, um, so at least I have you know now a couple publishers that I can go to. The one I was with before. Sadly, they ended up deciding that they needed to close down at the beginning of this year, being 2016, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I started 2016, was uh, my publisher closing. Then they since have changed their mind, but they have decided to focus only on romance. Um, So that's left a bunch of us orphans, and uh, some people are deciding to go on their own and self-publish others are, are moving their works to other small publishing companies so as far as that publishing company went when people were saying oh when's your next book coming out I really didn't know uh because they uh, they'd definitely wanted I think five of my books but then I found out that they weren't going to be around anymore so it was a bit of a mad scramble for at least half of the year to figure out what was going on and what I was going to do next.
0: Oh, that sounds really stressful.
1: It was. It was. It was heartbreaking in the beginning because, you know, it was my first publishing experience and I love them and I love the people that work there and we got to know everybody. So it was really, really hard in the beginning when people were losing their jobs, for sure.
0: But it sounds like you found two new publishers. How did you come to find Both Harlequin and and Severed Press, how did you connect with them?
1: Um, Both are kind of bizarre stories. Harlequin was doing an international search for the person who could write the next Gone Girl. That's how they pitched it. And a friend who's a romance writer uh, sent it to me. So they were basically looking for someone who could write a very dark, twisted psychological suspense. So I threw my hat in the ring for that, and I ended up winning. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm still kind of in shock, actually. Uh, So how they did that was they basically, they have a established Harlequin writer out of Australia, and they knew from the beginning that they wanted her involved, and they were looking for a new voice as a co-author, And three editors actually came up with the book itself, came up with the framework, the story, and they were looking for two writers to tell it. And I was the second writer that they brought in. So it was all about co-writing a story that already had the framework done. And I've never done that before. So that was a very interesting process.
0: How was that to, you know, you're so used to coming up with, like any writer is, the whole framework yourself. Did that make it harder or easier? It actually was... It actually was
1: easier in some ways than I thought it was gonna be. I thought it might be very hard to write normally to to norm- to get into the book the same way I would for any of my books, because with my books, it's basically a character shows up and starts talking to me, and they feel like they're real people, and I'm just recording their story. It feels like I'm completely outside of what happens to them, that I have no control over it. It's not me, you know, pulling their strings or anything like that. I never know how the book's going to end. It's like I find out when the readers do, basically, or as they would. So it's a completely different experience in this case I knew what was going to happen to this woman and I knew what her story was before I started and I was really worried about that changing how invested I got in her but I found I was able to the same way thankfully (laughs) Um, but I really had to do a lot of work to make her likable that was my main challenge was making this character likable Because they set up a woman that I thought right from the beginning, a lot of female readers might not have liked at all. So my biggest challenge was just making her likable and and making sure she was somebody that readers could relate to. And thankfully, they were very, very open to me making changes to their outline and, and fiddling with it a bit so I could do that. So that was great.
0: And then how so were you co writing with another writer during this process? Yes. Oh, wow. So how was that?
1: Uh, It was different.
0: (laughs) She was in Australia. I'm in Canada. Uh, My
1: editors are in the UK. Um, So we had one conference call where we were all on the line, and that was crazy. Like, the time zones of differences were just insane. Um, Other than that, uh, basically how it was split up is it's a story of two different sisters. So my co-writer, Shannon Stein, she had one sister, and I had the other sister, and we basically – really didn't have that much communication in between until it came time to put our parts together and do the final edits then we communicated and we had another Skype call but while we were doing the actual writing because we were going at such different paces we really were kind of doing it in our own little silo and then the editors put the book together and they had some questions for us and There were a few things we had to smooth out. But other than that, it was just like pretty much writing a book by yourself and then having to collaborate on the editing, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting premise. It almost reminds me of, this is a weird reference, but there was that um, Bunuel movie, that obscure object of desire. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there was a main character and when he was casting for it. He really liked two of the actresses. And he ended up using both of them and just interchanging them periodically throughout the movie whenever like one of them was the more demure side of the character. And one of them was the more kind of wild side, but you're watching this movie and you're like, that's not the same woman. And I wonder how it feels to read a book when it's written by two different people who have different styles and, and different ways of approaching it. I think in a way that could be really interesting.
1: Well, I think they thought because it's two different sisters uh, I think they thought it would be kind of interesting if a different person wrote each sister. But it did get complicated because we had to write each other's characters and we didn't know how the other person was writing that character. So that's where it got kind of complicated. And we went, when we went through the final draft, that's when it's like, oh, well, you have my husband working in finance, but I have them really not doing anything, having a life of leisure. So stuff like that. There was a bit of a disconnect that we had to smooth out. But very few things really, when you consider how challenging that would be, we really didn't have that much, which is incredible. Um, so that's good. But yeah, it's we did write each other's characters slightly differently. So there was some smoothing over to do
0: for sure. That's fascinating. Were there discrepancies with the language just regionally? Versus Canada with Australia. I mean, I can think of little Australianisms. I know a lot of people in Australia that, that might be different than than in Canada.
1: Yeah, that was actually funny because my editors being in the UK and her being in Australia, very similar English, right. same account, but they wanted this book set in the States and set in the Hamptons. <laughs> so I said to them, okay, is this a British book set in the Hamptons or is this a book that you want to seem like an American book set in the Hamptons and they said an American book. So I was flagging like, you know, there'd be pram instead of stroller and brawly instead of umbrella and the word fab and stuff like that. So one of the things I did, I normally write, I write primarily for an American audience. I mean, I have readers from everywhere, but that's you know most of my books are set in the states and I use American spelling and so forth so I was kind of the one that went through and and flagged everything that I think at one point my co-writer had silver side she put the silver side into the pan and I had to look up what that was it's a kind of steak I guess but I had no idea what that was I'd never even heard that term before
0: no me Um, either
1: And they wouldn't know, right? Like living in Australia, you wouldn't necessarily know that not everybody uses that term. So that was, I kind of took that upon myself to flag those things. Be sort of the American eye on it, even though I'm not American. I'm close.
0: (laughs) You're like an American um, spy with (laughs) with American English. Pretty much. Yeah, it's just those little tiny things like different to instead of different than, and you know, I'm always hearing those. I find them really charming, but you can tell. So that's interesting—the difference between what kind of book you want based on the language. So, how did you find Severed Press, and and what books are they focusing on with you? Severed Press.
1: This was interesting. The same friend. So, I highly recommend if if writers can cultivate a friend who just happens to figure out how you get published because mine's fabulous. I think every time I've gotten published, she's had a hand in it somehow, either flagging the opportunity for me or suggesting something, but she's been pretty amazing. Um, In this particular instance, she said, well, why don't you go on Amazon And see which people are publishing the top horror books. So I did. And there were four publishers that stood out, uh, whereas most of, like, say, the top 10 horror books on Amazon were published by them. And I contacted each of them and just said, are you looking for anything? And the only one that got back to me with an actual, like, answer I could use that was more than just, oh, well, give us your best manuscript... Uh, was Severed Press and they said we want sea monster stories. I'm like I can do that I can do a sea monster story so that's how I ended up with them. I wrote it and I was absolutely terrified that they wouldn't take it because it's so different from most sea monster stories um, but uh, within I think within a month of sending it to them maybe even less it might have been three weeks they offered me a contract. I was very relieved <laughs> because, you know, I'd written it for them. So I was really hoping that they'd like it. So was it a a short story or a full novel? It's a full novel. It's, uh, it's a little shorter than most novels that I write. Most of my novels come in around 80,000 words, this one's closer to 60. So it's a little bit shorter than normal, but it's definitely a novel.
0: So I'm curious what the difference is between a normal sea monster story and, and like where you diverge, if we don't want to spoil the book, but... If you can say, well,
1: in my particular story, the monster per se is not the sea creature, it's people. Ah. So, and I started out that way, taking a really hard line where the people were, were workers for the oil industry and uh, doing offshore drilling. Um, so I started out with a very hard line that, you know, the people are the monsters, and the monster actually has a point of view and is quite a sensible, intelligent organism. It ended up that as I wrote, of course my characters become real people and it's not as easy as being white or black. They they, you know, there's lots of shades of gray. There's things that the creature does that maybe aren't that great and then there's a lot of redeeming qualities of some of the people. So it ended up being a lot more complex and complicated than I set out to write. That is one of the main differences I think is that the creature isn't necessarily a monster. And he has a point of view,
0: I love that, thank
1: you, yeah. it was sort of my ill conceived rant against offshore <laughs> offshore drilling, but <laughs> it got a little more complicated than that.
0: So how long does it take you to write a novel because the way i 'm hearing it, it seems like i mean, what was the timeline between hearing they wanted sea monster stories and when you sent them the book? That one took a while. Um, where I tend
1: to get bogged down is in rewriting, unfortunately. To write a book, if I stick with it and I don't take time off, which rarely happens, um, I can probably be done one in a couple months, maybe four months at the most, if I'm struggling with it at all. But it's the rewriting that, that is very challenging for me, where it might take me more time. And I'm hoping one of the biggest things that's going on in my life in 2017 is as of March, I'm going to be focusing on fiction full time. Um, And that's going to make a huge difference for me because previously I was a journalist, I was a publicist, I was an editor. So I had so much going on that my writing, even though it's really what I wanted to focus on, was, you know, sort of shuffled off to the end of my day. And by end of my day, I'm talking four or five in the morning to get everything done. So it just wasn't working anymore.
0: Well, congratulations
1: on making that shift. Thank you. I'm terrified, but I hope it'll work out. Well, it seems like being terrified would help your genre. (laughs) True. Um, The reason, too, I'm rebranding my, the site that people will see in 2017 won't be as much horror, horror, horror. And that's just because I find there's a disconnect between what people think of when they think of horror and what I write. What I write is more Except for the monster story. The monster story is pretty much as straight up horror as you can get, although it's very psychological as well. Uh, What I tend to write is more along the Gone Girl lines. The dark psychological suspense is a better descriptor of what I write. When people hear the word horror, they often think Friday the 13th or, you know, Halloween, they think slasher, they think gore. That's not what I do.
0: Interesting. I I happen to be a step parent of a horror lover, so I have been exposed to a lot more horror over recent years. But it seems like the genre continues to get more complex. Has it evolved in recent years? It seems like it has. I think
1: maybe people are just becoming more aware of everything it is. Like for instance, I know I know lots of people who write off Stephen King, for instance, as being horror, period. Whereas he writes sci-fi, he writes mystery, he writes crime fiction, they all have horrific elements, but I've always said Gone Girl is a horror. Uh, it just wasn't billed that way. But that is a horrific book. I don't know oh, if you've to- read-
0: Oh, I have. I have. But that is a
1: horror book. It's just been repurposed because the publishing industry doesn't think that horror sells. Um, so they'll call it suspense. But there's lots of commonalities between the two. It's just, yeah, if people hear horror if they're not informed, or they haven't read a lot of horror books, they think of slasher, they think of torture porn. Uh, They don't think they don't think of something like Gone Girl as being horror. But it is it totally is.
0: It seems like there are certain genres where it's almost an umbrella term for a lot of sub genres, like slasher porn, or torture porn, or any of those things, that maybe somebody is not interested in and so they write off the whole thing. I think of that happening also with um genres of music where people are like, oh I don't like that. But they they don't think about the little bits underneath. Exactly. And it's really sad. And when I saw a
1: lot of a lot of close friends in that would say like, oh, oh, I really want to support you, but I don't read horror. And I'm like, okay. Cause I knew they would like my book if they give it a shot, but they were seeing the word horror and using that to just assume they wouldn't like it. And that's when I knew I had to make a shift because when those people did read it, they were like, Oh, actually that wasn't so bad. I really like that. Maybe I should read more horror. It's like, see, I told you <laughs> it's not that bad. I think in the eighties there was a trend of like putting out all these pulp horror books Um, A lot of writers just would, you know, there were tons of different writers that I can't even think of anyone right now. And they would just, all these books would come out and they'd be really cheesy and poorly written. And I think, you know, with the bloody cover, and I think that really cheapened the genre. And so people kind of have that pulp kind of idea when they think of horror, where it's just going to be a cheap book with no characterization and no real theme. And it's just going to be some guy killing somebody else. And yeah, that's, that's a very, very limited view of what horror is, I think, anyways.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people, there are certain breakthrough books that change the trajectory for a genre, like I'm thinking of 50 Shades of Grey, and now all these people want to read erotic fiction, whereas before they were like, No, no, I can't do that. And the same with Gone Girl of, you know, oh, I don't want to read something too scary. But that, you know people once they have one experience then they're willing to be open to other options for sure and that's a struggle too right getting
1: getting a breakthrough book in horror when you're not Stephen King or Dean Koons or you know that's a very challenging thing to do my hats off to Han Rice because you know being a woman in the genre and trying to get your name out there is incredibly difficult And when I started and I heard about things like Women in Horror Month and that sort of thing, I kind of was like, oh, whatever. Uh, I didn't really think that that was a problem. I thought, oh, well, maybe they're just not writing well enough or they're not promoting themselves well enough. And and I've since found out that isn't the case. There really is a strong – I don't know if it's a bias. I don't know if it's intentional even. But you can have – awesome male horror writer friends and they love you and they support your work but when it comes time for them to list their 10 favorite horror authors they won't even think of you they won't think of the women that write it they just it's just a disconnect they just when asked to list their favorite horror writers you get king you get clive barker you get dean Koontz, and those names come up over and over and over again so it's a very it's a very
0: difficult genre for women
1: to break into i find
0: That's so interesting. Because when I think of her, like, I think all of sort of women authors, but maybe I just prefer those particular authors. Like, I mean, Gone Girl was a tough book for me, but I'm thinking of other writers, of course, now I'm blanking, but it's, I don't, I wouldn't have thought of Clive Barker or any of them. I mean, now that you mention it, of course, I know who he is. But that's interesting that it's so difficult, even still, that's a shame. It is. And that's where, you know, getting
1: into more psychological suspense or supernatural suspense, which honestly is what I love to write to anyways, that can help because women are very established in those genres and very respected in those genres. Um, so you're not always the you know redheaded stepchild trying, <laughs> trying desperately to break into something. But then again, I mean, pretty much my entire career has been that, where I've been a woman in a very male-dominated field, and I have to like do everything I can to get recognized and get my get my work in there and be accepted. And so it's not really nothing new. But when I found that out, I was like, oh, not again, really.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You're like back in Anchorman with the journalism side. But I want to go back to something you said earlier about suggesting that people cultivate a friend who helps you get into publishing. So what characterizes this friend? I'm, I'm trying to help people find someone like this. Um, the thing with her is she tends to find calls. So she
1: finds submission calls. And that, and if she sees a submission call that she thinks would be suited for somebody else, she passes it on, uh, whether or not she's interested. So definitely a characteristic is a lack of jealousy. And I find that an incredible trait uh, because I've definitely had a lot of writer friends where there's a competitive aspect to it. Um, there's not with this woman. She just genuinely wants everybody around her to succeed as well. And with the Harlequin call, that was that was a little bit tricky for me because she's a romance writer. So her absolute dream is to be published by Harlequin. And here I am writing horror and dark fiction. And the first call I submit to, I get in. And she gave me that call. She told me about it. I don't follow them or I didn't. So I never would have seen it on my own. And so I felt a little weird and I was like, Oh, are, are you okay with this? And she was like, Oh no, no, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy for you. And it was such a relief because, you know, I felt, I felt really bad about it actually. I felt guilty. It's like, well, here you are, you're trying to break into Harlequin. I know it's very, very difficult for a lot of romance writers. And I feel like I just fluked into it really. Um, so I felt really bad, but, I'd say definitely cultivate someone that whose strengths are different than yours uh because she's very she's awesome at being connected to industry information and seeing calls from different publishers and keeping an eye on trends whereas I've always been too swamped with my journalism and that to look at that I could you know I could get my books out and I could research agents and I could research publishers but I honestly never got around to doing all the things that she does, and she being a full time writer she's very focused on looking for opportunities so if even if you know somebody in your circle that um, say is very well connected to different writers or very well connected to different publishing segments or very uh somebody that will kick you in the butt and get you to submit stuff if you have a hard time submitting or somebody who will uh, give you a kick in the butt and get you to finish a book if that's your issue. Just somebody that I think there's there's no um, ugly competition between you and somebody that has a different skill set than you do or different interests than you do. I think is hugely helpful.
0: I think that's a really important point. Is that it could be really easy to just kind of isolate. Well, as a writer, it's easy for us to isolate. Period. But isolate among one's own genre and not to know people writing different kinds of books, whereas it seems like that's hugely helpful, because then it isn't, there isn't such a risk of competition.
1: Well, in my writers group, we have one person who writes YA, uh, my friend who I've mentioned who writes romance, and then me, and I found that to be a really good mix. You get pretty much every end of the spectrum one of us has experienced something, no matter what topic we're on, we've, we've always got like the broad range of all the different experiences. Whereas if I was in a podcast with say horror writers, I mean, you might get that a little bit, but our, our experiences are going to be a lot more similar, because we're writing in the same genre.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how has journalism impacted your fiction writing? Because you've got a whole career as a journalist. And then you're writing fiction. Do the two influence each other in any way? Well, I started
1: off be- my first love being uh, novel writing. I started writing books when I was five, which I think lots of writers say that it's, you know, not an uncommon thing. Um, so that was always my first love. And I got into journalism because I, I thought that I needed a writing job to pay the bills while I was working on being the great American novelist. That's what I wanted to be. Um, so that's how I got into journalism. It's influenced my fiction in that I treat writing as a business and I don't miss deadlines. Uh, I never miss a deadline. I'm incredibly reliable. And I really think uh, being a journalist and especially being a freelance journalist has taught me that, has taught me how to run a business, has taught me to treat writing as a profession. So um, you'll never hear me say things like, oh, I wasn't inspired today or my muse wasn't there or... You know, something along that lines. If Harlequin says, "Okay, we need this book in by September 30th," it is going to be in by September 30th. I'm not going to be, you know, blaming my muse for it not being done. Um, so I think that that's been a huge uh, help for me as far as being a journalist is just treating it like a business and knowing what that means. And I don't find it, I don't find it as difficult to market myself as some other writers have said that they do because. I'm used to running a writing business. It's a bit different to market yourself as a novelist, but it's not completely unfamiliar territory to me. So I think that's helped me a bit too.
0: So when you are able to hit these deadlines, I know a lot of people do think, oh, the muse and all of the things like you said. So when you sit down and how do you experience the actual writing process so that you stay on task? Without getting derailed?
1: The biggest thing for me is trying to avoid taking time off. Uh, Nano is a great example. Um, I do Nano. I've done Nano every year for the last four years. So, NaNoWriMo, if people don't know, National Novel Writing Month, where you're supposed to write 30,000 or sorry, 50,000 words in November. Um, for some reason, even though that's really not that much, it's only you're only writing 1,667 words a day, which really, if you're going to be a full-time author, that's not really extravagant. For some reason, I still find that incredibly challenging. And what will always happen with me is I'll end the month with my 50,000 words, and then I've always got a good 20 30,000 words left to complete my book. I always take time off. I'm always like, oh, God, nano's over. You know, now I'm going to take just just two days off and two days turns into a week turns into two weeks. And, and before I know it, I've got to reread my entire novel again, to get that voice back and to get back into it. Um, So a big thing for me is not taking time off. And even when I really, really don't feel like writing, or I don't know what's going to happen next, forcing myself to sit down and just do it, even if it's uncomfortable. And I find that if you do that, you'll push through it, and it'll be fine. But I've, I've heard that quite a few people, if they feel that way, they won't try. Mm. They'll be, you know, I, I just don't feel like writing today. It's not coming, and they won't try. I'm not saying that uh, writer's block doesn't exist. I've never personally experienced it, but I think for sure it has to exist, um, and that might be completely different. Like if people are struggling with things um, in their lives, it can be incredibly difficult to write. But for me, I find that I have to push on, and if I push on and treat it more like a writing job, then I'll get through it. Rather than treating it like a hobby, where if I don't feel like doing it today, I don't have to. So those are the big things for me.
0: That's. I think that's really important. That it's. I think as soon as writing becomes optional, it changes the tone completely. Oh, for sure. The first—I don't want to get off totally,
1: get you off track—but the first nano I did, a dear friend of mine committed suicide uh, in the last week, and it was my first nano so I was already really, really behind. <laughs> and uh, and then he died, and it and it was it was horrible how he died. Um, so very traumatic, very almost I think almost every one of us involved in the situation had p t s d to a certain extent of course, yeah, very much so and so it was it was very tempting if I can use that word it doesn 't sound like the right word, but it was very tempting to say, You know what i 'm done i this is too hard i can 't do it, and I just thought, you know what, my friend would not want me to use what happened to him as an excuse not to do this thing that he really believed I should be doing. Um, So even though I was crying, even though I was upset, I pushed through and I finished. And I I take that experience now. I look back, I go, well, what could be that bad? You know, hopefully nothing is ever that bad again. Uh, So if it's a matter of, oh, I've got a cold or you know, I don't feel like writing today, or I got in a fight with my boyfriend or whatever, it's never going to be as bad as what I was already able to overcome. So I look at it that way.
0: And and sometimes that helps. I would think so. That is a good. I mean, it's a horrible experience. And it's also a reasonable bar to say nothing is going to be that bad again. Oh, God, I hope not. Oh, I can. Yeah, I hope not either. So in the in the bars, I'm I'm sorry, I'm so obsessed with this with the bars and um, your progress report on your books. You have a number that are in progress now. So are you working on some of them, but at different points, or are you do you jump back and forth between some of them or are some of them getting published? I'm curious about how you've got multiple ones in the in the pipeline
1: well that was when I had this bright idea that I wasn't producing fast enough so I should write more than one book at a time um yeah that doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I thought that was a great idea I thought you know because I was looking at like for instance my romance writer friend uh she has such a great time she writes about she you know it's Christmas and she has to write a Christmas book and I'm like, oh, that's so much fun. And meanwhile, you know, I'm writing about like the slave in the 1600s who's having all these horrible experiences and it's all dark and I'm scaring myself and I'm like, oh, that looks like fun. I should write a cozy. And um, so I was. I thought if I had a few different books that were different moods, um, then if I didn't feel like being dark and, and really going into somebody's like incredible physical and emotional trauma that day, I could write about something lighter and I was trying that and yeah, it just got, it got pretty complicated. Those bars are probably pretty out of date. Um, so from, from now on the new site, we'll just have one. Right. Some um, progress and people can see how I'm coming with that. That makes a lot more sense because these other ones, yeah, it's like, you know, and then you finish the first draft. And so what do you do when you're rewriting? Do you have progress bars for that or, It was getting a little complicated. But yeah, I've definitely found that writing more than one book at a time doesn't work for me very well.
0: That makes sense. It seems like if you want to change moods, maybe you alternate genres from book to book. Like next time I'll get to write a cozy. Yeah, that makes more sense. Because what I was finding is I just I
1: kept going back to the same book. So one kept getting neglected. Anyways, so but they're still there. All those books that are up, they're still there. They're still in progress. So I'm not going to get rid of any of them. I'll I'll finish them all. But yeah, it'll just take me some time.
0: No, it makes sense. I can see why experimenting with different options would be appealing. Because then you get to keep going. But it's it's sort of like reading to me. I'm always like, Oh, I'm going to read I read like three books at once. But then I'm like, why am I not finishing anything? It's like, huh, because you're only reading a little bit of three books, and then you don't finish. That's cool that you're able to do
1: that. See, that's another thing I can't do. It's like I only can read one book at a time.
0: The way I separate it is I can read one fiction, kind of hard copy book, I can read one nonfiction book. And then I can listen to an audiobook and then they're separate in my head. Oh, cool. So, cause I'm like, oh, this is the one I'm listening to. That story feels different. But other than that, I can't, I couldn't do more than that.
1: That's awesome.
0: I have to be able to read at all times. So that's why I have, I have that set up that way.
1: I can totally relate to that.
0: What are, what are you reading right now?
1: I'm actually reading an older book right now. It's called Insatiable and it's, the a nonfiction book by I'm probably going to butcher her name but as far as I know it's pronounced Gail Green
0: oh yeah I and, know that book I haven't read it but I I have it
1: oh cool yeah so that's what I'm working for I have a thing for food memoirs I love food memoirs love them you know it's like I went to Italy and I ate my way through the country like books like that I love those books Um, so yeah that's why I picked that one up and it's nothing like I expected because it's a lot more about her sex life than it is about her her uh, life as a food critic for New York so that's different
0: yeah I guess that's that's something to do I guess the double entendre of that title then works in that in that instance yeah very much so
1: and I guess that's what they were playing with too was she was called the insatiable food critic Uh, in her column and i think it was in the 70s or whatever with the sexual revolution going on so they really wanted to build up that side of her but yes it's it's very disconcerting at some points it's like you think you're reading about food and then all of a sudden she's having sex with burt reynolds it's like okay all right that was a that was a bizarre transition but okay burt reynolds is good and bad good to know
0: plot twist (laughs) so you must love ruth reichel
1: yes I do. I'm obsessed with Ruth Recogn. I
0: love her. I love yeah. her so much. Yeah, Tender of the Bone is one of my
1: very favorites. Oh, those are great books. And I keep wishing she'd write more in that vein. But yeah, it's she seems to be she seems to be a woman who takes her time with books. And I'm like, oh, now I'm one of those people. When's the next one coming out? Come on. But yeah, I love it. I even bought her uh I don't know if you saw her cookbook where she yeah.
0: Yeah, you got that one? I I don't have it, but I have seen it, and it's been very tempting. We have a lot of cookbooks, so we're trying to be conscious of our cookbook
1: consumption. I mostly got it because she basically tells the story uh, throughout the cookbook about how she got over her depression Mm. when she lost her job at Gourmet. Um, So that's why I wanted it. It wasn't even so much the recipes because I know it's going to be something where – the chances of me actually being able to find those ingredients here are slim to none. So I mostly got it just for her writing and her story. And it it doesn't disappoint for that at all.
0: That's so fascinating. I'm always so interested in the genre that people read versus the one that they write, because there couldn't be anything more different than like, scary, suspenseful, who knows what's going to happen versus food writing, where you sort of do know what it's going to be about. And it's so cozy and reassuring. So that's amazing that you've that you have both of those sides.
1: I do love cozy mysteries as well. Um, Although I find it's difficult to find, uh, find one that I like because I always have that. Like I know a lot about how police investigations work from being a journalist and also from the writing that I do. There's quite often cops involved or an investigation. So I've had to learn the ins and outs of that. So I always have a problem with Cozy Mysteries where it's like it'll be a baker or a restaurant owner or a caterer or something and they'll insert themselves in the investigation and start in, you know, basically questioning people and, and doing all these things that the cops would never ever in a million years allow them to do. Um, but yet there's always a cop that backs them up or gets their information and I have a problem finding cozy mysteries where I can suspend that disbelief long enough to enjoy it. But if I do find one, like I love Joanne Flukes books, for instance, they're not perfect books, but there's something about uh, the characters that she's created in that town where it feels like coming home. It's a very comforting thing to read her books.
0: Mm, I haven't read her. I'll have to look her up. The one I'm thinking of as you're saying that it's they're hit or miss, but they're very funny is uh, the have you read the Max Tudor books? No, I don't think so.
1: But that sounds really familiar.
0: Yeah, there's the thing I love about them, the way that they get around this villager getting involved in the investigation is that he's the the vicar of the town, but he became a vicar because he was a burned out MI5 operative. And so the local I guess he's the chief inspector to DCI or whatever. Yes, DCI Cotton is the guy's name. He consults with him and says, well, can you question the people because you're the vicar and you used to be an MI5 agent, so you'll have some insight that maybe would be useful. So that sort of gets around that this would never happen issue. So those are pretty fun. And they're, the, when when she keeps them in the village themselves, there are some hilarious observations. Like I've had a snort laugh, reading those.
1: That's cool. I'll have to look into that. I've definitely heard of them. But I didn't realize that that was the premise. So
0: yeah, it's pretty clever. I mean, there are a few where I'm like, okay, it's a little bit slow this time. But um, but they're definitely cozy. And you can definitely understand why he would be consulted. Well, yeah, that makes sense.
1: I do love true crime. And I do read horror and and psychological suspense. But I find that, again, it's the same thing. It's finding authors where you really enjoy their writing. I love Stephen King. I call Stephen King, you know, like when when you have to fill in what your religion is, I'll, I'll put the church of Stephen King. Re- <laughs> you know, I revere the man. I love the man. Even with his, you know, uh, how how prolific he's been, there's still a break between books. So then it's like, okay, well, who else do you read in the genre? And yeah, and I, I still like dig around and look for people where I'm really going to enjoy their work enough to keep reading them. He's a tough act to follow that guy.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I love his writing book, actually. I think his writing book is really wonderful.
1: Oh, me too. I love it. It's Again, I call that my
0: Bible. But yeah.
1: But I, I love that book. I can't even guess how many times I've read that.
0: Yeah, I can, I can see it. It's right on my shelf here as I'm talking. It actually got me to write fiction again. I'd stopped
1: for a long time because I was so uh, immersed in journalism and public relations and uh, reading on writing got me to to write fiction again. And so I've always had this fantasy that, you know, I'll get the big publishing contract someday and I'll be able to somehow reach him and and thank him for that because that was huge for me.
0: Well, Stephen King, if you're listening, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that.
1: I'm sure he's never heard that before, right? (laughs) I'm
0: sure no one's ever thanked him, but I'm sure it means something every time.
1: I hope so. I hope people never get to the point that that doesn't mean it's something to them. Because I would think that'd be pretty amazing. Whenever I have someone write me and say that, my writing evokes something in them, or I help them in some way, or even that they missed me, if I take a little time off blogging, and people say, Oh, I'm so glad you're back. I really missed you. That means the world to me. I can't imagine getting to a point where I wouldn't care about that. I doubt they ever do. I would hope not.
0: Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about all of this with us. And I'm sure that many people will pick up some some horror books with new curiosity after this conversation and maybe we'll be open to writing some stories not knowing what the end is going to be. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. And if uh, I'm totally open, if people ever want to talk about stuff like this, or they want horror book recommendations or anything, they can always get a hold of me. I'm pretty open that way.
0: Awesome. We will link to your site in the show notes. So if you want to reach out then um, we'll have links for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure and check out storyarcana.com because the class is open for registration through January 13th. Class will be starting on January 16th and it'll run for three weeks. It's going to be awesome. So hope to see you there. Thanks again. And remember to visit our sponsor pretty by post to check out their gorgeous indie card greeting cards or stationary subscriptions. Remember you can visit prettybypost.com slash that's book DR, to learn how you can get free shipping on the lifetime of your subscription.